My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... The thing is, I want to learn. And as it turns out, I work with people who know a lot about classical music. Every week on this show, one of my coworkers will give me a homework assignment, a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. All right, class. <laughs> okay, everybody calm down. It's time for another episode of... The Classical Classroom. I'm your host, Aisha Clay, and today my guest, my teacher, if you will, will be um, Chris Johnson, who I'm welcoming back to the Classical Classroom. He was here low those many months ago when the Classical Classroom first started in our very first episode. He is, um, by the way, Classical 91.7's uh, afternoon drive host, and he also does the show What's New on Saturdays. Chris, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back, and congratulations on the success of your show. Oh, go on. I'm serious. It's been fun listening, and I've been itching to get back in here. I'm so glad you're back, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm really stoked about what we were going to be talking about today. Well, I had hoped you would be, so I've been waiting for you to get some more episodes under your belt before I come in and uh, hopefully like blow your mind with blow something you've mind never hole. heard before. <laughs> well, what, what are we going to be talking about today? What are you teaching me? Well, I wanted to talk about... Uh, genre of music that is, um, I hesitate to call it a genre yet because it's still kind of formulating. And I first heard the word um, in 2005 or 2006 called alt classical. Yeah. Kind of coming, remember back in the 90s when everything was alt, everything, everything was alternative. Alternative to what? (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. So I've heard it called that. Um, There's a guy in London um, who is the grandson of the great Russian classical composer Sergei Prokofiev. His name is uh, Gabriel, and he runs a label and a series of concerts, which he calls non-classical. And then these days, particularly if you look to New York, um, you see um, what is now people are sometimes referring to as indie classical. So although there's more at play than just the two genres of indie rock and classical kind of meeting, which is essentially what's happening, Mm -hmm. um, there's a little more to it than that, but that's probably the simplest way to to talk about it. The word classical kind of gets bandied about like uh, people use the word Kleenex to mean tissue or Coke to mean a soda uh, or pop for those of you who live in the North. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So... So tell me a little bit more about that. Like, I will say for what we're talking about today that there will be many people who will be staunchly opposed to me referring to it as classical. Hmm. Um, and that could be for better or worse. I think some of the people writing the music would just assume uh, that it not be bunched up in the same box as Mozart and Bach. Mm. Um, But also the people who are sort of your more traditional classical music lovers, they will hear music like this and instantly um, get angry at the idea of it being uh, referred to as classical. So that's part Mm. of it. But, you know, um, a few years ago, I interviewed an author by the by the name of Joe Horowitz, who's a, a, you know, a known scholar and expert on classical music in America. And he says that we are now in a post-classical era, 
that essentially starting with the music of John Adams and Steve Reich, which I know you've talked about on this program before, yeah. um, and Philip Glass, that we're there, although those composers are sometimes fit into the quote-unquote classical canon, that they are the beginning of a post-classical era of concert music. Yeah. So if you if you follow contemporary music writing and reading, like there's a, a website, New Music Box, they refer to music being written today as simply concert music. They don't call it classical music. Huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that term is kind of what they're using to distinguish it from other genres of music, like yeah. rock music or jazz or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So they're calling it concert music. That's that's interesting. You know, this word indie classical is a small word that is uh, an attempt to classify like a large quantity of music that's being written right now. So um, Nico Muley is a composer that I picked to kind of focus on because he straddles the line between classical and non-classical. You'll see his music in the Metropolitan Opera House, uh, as you will in 2014 when his opera debuts there. and But you'll also see him on stage uh, as he was recently with Sufjan Stevens and Bryce Dessert. Uh, D- uh, Desner. Desner, Desner. Yeah, the guy from yeah. The National. Yeah. Um, and they did this collaborative multimedia show called The Planetarium. And once mm-hmm. you really look at it, it's like an indie classical version of Gustav Holst's The Planets. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, t- tell me a little bit about Nico, like where he came from, what his influences are. Yeah. Well, um, he is a, uh, an American, uh, grew up in Vermont, went to school in New York, uh, studied at Juilliard, did the dual degree program that they have at Juilliard and Columbia. He trained with John Corleano at the Juilliard School, um, who's a noted, solidly classical composer who mm-hmm. is still working and still alive, but uh, of an older generation, let's say. Okay. Um, and um, and then he also worked and probably still works to some degree alongside of Philip Glass. Hmm. So, and with Nico's music, part of the influence is that. So you can hear everything from Bjork, John Adams, Steve Reich, Philip Glass to, you know, William Byrd or uh, John Dowling or some of these uh you know, pre-Baroque era church composers. Hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we hear yeah. some? Okay, wait. So before we started, though, I wanted to point out a couple of things first, because one of the things, one of the reasons why I picked this piece is because within this piece, you hear, um, I'm going to use the word, a <laughs> quote-unquote fusion. <laughs> it's a really bad word, but I like to use that word because it's so dated these days. But, um, but you hear a mixture or a melding or you can just, if you listen closely, you will hear about 20 different influences in here. Um, some classical, some not. Mm-hmm. You know, so it starts in the very beginning with the first movement where you have this slow, bombastic, like, introduction to a piece, which is not very different than a classical era symphony, say, by Haydn or something like that. Okay. See, he's all setting the stage here. Now, the piece is scored for a multi-instrumental performer, one performer, and a pre-recorded CD. Really? Yeah. So that's what's happening on stage. When if this you were piece to go see this in concert, you'd see one person with a whole lot of equipment and several instruments 
and uh, a pre-recorded soundtrack, basically. Okay. Which I didn't know. I had always wondered. I thought this could only exist in the studio. As you can hear, there's so many things that I, I didn't know it, it could exist as concert music, but it is performed. Because it sounds like what's happening is that they're playing a house. Like, like doors creaking and well there's all of that yeah that's the fun thing about nico is he adds all of those sound effects there's places where you hear like knives uh -huh. like sharpening in the background uh -huh. so here he's using this minimalist uh technique mm -hmm. where he's giving us just little pieces of a theme and then he adds another one there were two sisters walking and then you get the second theme right above it, but only in pieces. So, and this is a common minimalist technique, you know. So, so he's going to keep building and building and building, and then at some point you're going to get a whole song. Yeah. And this is um, one thing that distinguishes concert music from classical music because you can hear their little things repeated here, but the piece isn't built on repetition. Mm -hmm. If you had to say one thing that separated any kind of non-classical music, let's say pop music, from classical music, is that pop music is mostly built on repetition. Yes. Like the point of it is, is you get um, uh, something that repeats itself, and hopefully it repeats itself in an interesting way to where it doesn't sound completely obnoxious. Right. right. <laughs> Concert music has repetition in it, mm -hmm. but it's not designed around repetition. Yeah. That's not the primary thing that you have. It's not built to go back to a chorus over and over again. Exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. And so here you have a kind of what we call in classical development. Do you remember when you talked about the symphony? Did you did, did, did anybody use the word development? No, but I think I kind of, I mean, I kind of understand that, like uh, developing a theme. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's what's happening here, but in a very different way. Okay. And if you listen for a sec, you can hear the whole song now. Oh, the wind and the rain Watched her as she floated down Wind and rain. She floated on down to the old mill pond. Now, Chris. Yeah, everybody we should, knows. We should address the song. That we? there are no banjos in classical music. Oh, okay, okay, yes, good. Okay, good, good. So that's point number one. Yeah. So the piece was written for Sam Amidon, who is himself um, a, a, a folk singer, essentially, and he's a good friend of Nico Muley. So that's how that came to be. Okay. Um, and by the way, actually, uh, although I can't think of a piece except for maybe Gershon's Porgy and Bess that uses an actual banjo, um, I just saw a performance of a Mahler symphony which uses a mandolin. Which is close. So this is not unprecedented, what he's doing. Yeah. That piece of it. That piece of it. Okay. Now, we should also talk about the song because if you're yeah. hearing the song, the lyrics are kind of interesting. She... It's, it's essentially a song which is called a, a murder ballad. This is the Two Sisters murder ballad. It goes all the way back to 1656, and there are at least 21 English variants that exist. Never mind the versions of this tune that come from other countries. Oh, wow. And basic story of, of the tune is that these two sisters go down by a body of water. Sometimes it's a river, sometimes it's a sea, depending on the song. The older one pushes the younger one in and then refuses to pull her out again. Now, generally, the lyrics explicitly state the intent of the older daughter to drown the younger one, as you can hear in this one. Yeah. She pushed her in the uh, river to drown, yeah. basically. 
So, and her motive is sexual jealousy. You know, the younger sister receives a token of affection from this boy that they're both in love with. So the older sister, who is sometimes depicted as dark versus the younger sister being the fair mm-hmm. one, the older one, the older one kills her. And in this version of the song, it's it's very actually quite dark. Yeah, it is. <laughs> her body floats down to a mill and is found by a miller who proceeds to in this version of the song proceeds to fashion a fiddle out of her bones. Yeah, I heard that part. <laughs> that was I was sort of um uh, passively listening yeah, right. to it and then all of a sudden I went whoa yeah that's that's gross exactly man. exactly but see but the thing that I uh, another aspect of this piece which I really uh, enjoy is that if if you listen to the context that this melody comes out in uh-huh. it, it has almost no relation to the drama of the song mm-hmm. and in fact when we get to the third movement you're going to hear this like nostalgic uh, setting of the song. Yeah. You know, so what happens is the first movement, he, he, he gives you, by the end of the first movement, you've gotten the tune now. Yeah. And in the second movement, this is the kind of developmental movement, he uses another minimalist technique whereby all of these elements that started off piling up on each other one by one in the beginning are now all in one big mess together. Mm-hmm. And there just is this whole lot of noise and action and and the drama keeps building and the dissonance keeps building and then and eventually it all kind of breaks down see if you can hear it here like things get really dissonant and messy and tense he's starting here and then it's going to get really loud and really uh i don't know how you say it Cacophonic. (laughs) How do you say that? Cacophonic? There you go. And you can hear the singer is like basically belting it out at this point. Uh huh. Yeah, it sounds like he's kind of yelling. Yeah. 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 Yeah, what, are, what are you hearing as far as, because you were saying it's like there's some classical influences and some not. What kind of classical influences are we hearing? Well, in, basically in this, the, the biggest thing is in this one movement, he's doing this thing that minimalist composers like to do. He's pulled the song apart now. He's, he's elongating it, uh-huh. which is a classical uh, um, uh, device. Yeah, you see how the elements are starting to build? Mm-hmm. And okay. a- actually, by the way, um, a lot of these indie rock composers that don't really fit into a genre either, like mm-hmm. Owen Palette, Imogen Heap is probably the most popular um, mainstream example. Mm-hmm. They're what they call Ableton artists. They use this Ableton software and they come with their one instrument and they'll play something and then they'll loop it and then they'll play something else and then they'll yeah. loop it. So that what you get is is one thing and then another thing and then you, the, the pieces get built in layers and by the time you get to the middle of the song, that's mm-hmm. the busiest, most layered part. Yeah. Well, you know, Steve Reich and John Adams and the guys did use that use that mm-hmm. device a lot mm-hmm. more so Steve Reich actually. Yeah, I was hearing a little bit of piano phase in here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Now, see, Nico is as knowledgeable about all of that music as any of those other people that you just named, mm-hmm. Jonesy, Radiohead, all that kind of stuff like that. Yeah. And here it gets real crazy, and you can hear knives. Knives. Oh, oh! I just realized the knives. Yeah. 
that's the Millers. <laughs> it's really dark. And you hear how everything's getting really nasty and angsty and like, he's going to resolve that in a minute. Which is another key element of classical music. This is like the, is the creepiest music I've ever heard. <laughs> See, now it's like kind of like blowing up, almost disintegrating into like this big mess. And then yeah. it's going to explode again here in a second. There's your disintegration. <gasps> wow. So this music's kind of imploded on itself. Uh-huh. Which is, again, something that, you know, you hear a lot in minimalist classical music. Yeah. It but then he like, adds all this other stuff into the mix, you know? Sounds like a piano is being disemboweled. Yeah. Right now, that's And can you hear the like. celeste, with the bell-like instrument? Uh-huh. It almost sounds like there's a toy piano in the background, yeah. too. Yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then an actual piano. And then you've got a viola. And see, and then it calms down. Yeah. And now you're going to get this, like, very nostalgic kind of setting. Yeah. In a sec. That's when you know you're in the third movement. Because it starts to sound like a song again. Like an actual song. Right. See? And it's kind of emerging. And now it's the prettiest part. There were two sisters walking down by a stream. And he's like waxing nostalgic about this story about the older sister killing her younger sister. <laughs> Such a lovely story. I know, right? Oh, so pretty. So, you know, you have this piece of music that is, um, if you heard it, <laughs> you know, upon initial hearing, I think most people would not hear the connection to the classical canon. <laughs> <laughs> Except for maybe a couple of instruments, maybe. I don't know what other people would hear, but I would like to think that for a lot of people, they'll hear this and they'll say, no, that's not, that's not classical, Chris. <laughs> but, and depending, as you just demonstrated, depending on the angle you're coming at it. See, I listen and I hear Steve Reich, mm-hmm. and I hear John Adams, and I hear Haydn. Yeah. You know, and you hear Jonesy and Radiohead. Yeah. And, and that's why I love this music so much. Yeah. Because it's- you come to it from that background and I come to it from another background and yet now we can share this music that sort of meets yeah. in the middle somewhere. That's kind of cool mm-hmm. to have that um, like area where the the classical and the sort of contemporary rock stuff meet. I, I, but I'm I was thinking when I was listening to this today that 
I I was like, oh, I like this. Yeah. And I was like, why do I like this? Okay. Why do I like this? I mean, I, of course, it reminds me of, of certain things, uh-huh. like certain artists, but but on a deeper level, like why? What is it about this music that appeals to me? And um, and I, I think that it's because of the dissonance and the sounds that he uses. Okay. The um, because it sounds more like something that is familiar to me. The sounds of a city. Right. The sounds of computers. The sounds of yeah. machines. The you know. Um, yeah, there are all of these elements that are, you know, remind me of some creepy cabin in the woods where a dude is making an <laughs> instrument out of a woman's body too. But, but I mean, like, there's, um, yeah, there's, there's something sort of comfortable and familiar to me about yeah. about all of those weird electronic noises. Yeah, yeah, same here. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's just you know people our age. I mean, I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time you know in the '90s listening to what we call techno at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, electronic dance music, basically. Yeah. And some uh, people back in those days that that said that that's where music is going, and uh, that's one way music went. Mm-hmm. But that's part of my interest in contemporary music of all kinds, is because something happened for classical back in the early part of the 20th century, where things started to splinter. So you asked, like, what distinguishes classical from non-classical and where do we draw the lines? Yeah. You know, you could go all the way back to sometime in the mid-20th century and say, this is where classical music started to become something other than classical music. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was even um, people writing what they called uh, musique concrète, the concrete music, where they would record sounds from the natural world. Yeah. Like like we just alluded to. Yeah. You know, which is one aspect of what Nico Muley is doing here. You know, and John Adams has done it quite a lot. I mentioned mm-hmm. the transmigration of souls. That was a big aspect of that. He had recorded sounds of Manhattan. Yeah. And it well, was the most moving, one of the most moving concert experiences I've ever had. Yeah, Gershwin did that in the in the uh, episode of Classical Classroom I did with Amy Bishop, where we were talking about tome poems. Uh-huh. Um, the Gershwin piece, The American in Paris, like he actually brought in um, Parisian taxi cab yes. horns to play in the music. Yes, that's where they get that sound from, that authentic sound. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess there's there's kind of no better way to get across, you know, the, the story that you're telling or the, the picture you're painting than to use the actual elements yeah, yeah. Of, of that. Sure. Where do you see classical music, indie classical music, where do you see it going from here? I mean... Yeah. The thing is, is it's just things are getting different. Yeah. They're getting real different. Yeah. And um, everything that we associated with classical music, the idea of going to see a symphony orchestra in a nice concert hall where you would get dressed up and go down there, people do that. Um, but... But that is not the sum total of classical music today. And that's the biggest thing that's different about classical music today is all the traditional structures are transforming, disappearing, and whatever. And some people say that that's representative of the death of classical music. Other people, and I'm starting to be one of them, say that, thank goodness, all that stuff is going away. Because now people can like really come to appreciate music without all of the sort of negative things that people associate with classical music. The elitism, the... You know, the whole idea of putting on a suit and going down to a concert hall. 
Yeah. You know, what if you don't have a suit and you just like music? Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Nico Muley, because you asked me where I think music's heading, and I don't really know. But um, if I were somebody who was interested in the topic of where is classical music going and what's the future of classical music going to sound like, I would be watching and listening to people like Nico very closely because he fully embraces the classical tradition. His music wouldn't be what it is if he wasn't highly versed in the classical canon all the way back to the 14 and 1500s. His music wouldn't be what it is, but it also wouldn't be what it is if he didn't hang out in Iceland, like, I don't know, it seems like three or four times a year, he goes over to visit Bjork or whoever, and, you know, and, and all those people that he works with, you know, so his music wouldn't be what it is if it weren't for all of that. Yeah. Now, whether or not people follow in his footsteps and embracing all of that, I don't know. We'll mm-hmm. see. Um, Chris, this has been a really engaging discussion. And I wish we could keep talking for like two more hours. (laughs) But alas, we must end the episode at some point. Um, (laughs) Listeners, I'd be really interested to see what your thoughts are on where classical music is headed and how you think it should change or not change. Um, If you'd like to weigh in on that discussion, send me an email at dclay at classical917.org. And Chris, thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, this is fun. Thanks for letting me share something that I personally just get really excited about. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everybody, thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you next time. If you want to join me in studying for our next class, our assignment is Samuel Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915, as taught by Keith Weber. Why won't anybody tell me who I am? You can find a recording of Eleanor Stieber singing that piece at classical917.org backslash classroom.